Welcome to Season 2 of Insurgency Unmasked. Join us as we explore the hidden stories and complexities of the Ukrainian conflict and listen in as we deconstruct the war in Ukraine step by step, expert by expert. Welcome to another episode of Insurgency Unmasked. Today, we're honoured to have Elliot Chapman with us. Elliot's a dedicated PhD student at Leeds Beckett University, whose research centres on the economic and social changes within post-Soviet states as they progress towards the European Union. Elliot's work aims to unravel the intricate dynamics of Europeanisation and its impact on labour rights and social conditions in these nations. Today, we'll be talking about the shock doctrine and its implementation in Ukraine. Hey Elliot, how are you today? Hello, I'm great. Happy to be on the podcast. Happy to be talking with you. Yeah, it's great to finally have you on. Um, if anyone doesn't know, me and Elliot did go to university together and are very good friends. So it's brilliant to finally have you on. Yeah, so let's kick off. We're, when we say shock doctrine, I'm, I imagine a lot of people have no idea what that is. So give me a quick overview. So I first became aware of the idea of the shock doctrine through a book released by Naomi Klein. Um, she released it in 2017. And actually, it's funny because I think you currently have my copy of the book somewhere. I certainly do. Um, and really, she's talking about the implementation of disaster capitalism through national or global shock. So, yeah, the implementation of disaster capitalism through national or global shock. So these are things that policies or economic or societal changes that wouldn't usually be accepted during stable times. Um, and she kind of uses the word shock to mainly refer to the psychological shock that happens during times of sort of turbulence in society and how these can be used by capitalists to sort of implement rapid changes and sort of change the, I guess, psychological discourse of a country. So, um, for example, one of the first examples she gives in her book is the 2004 tsunami in Sri Lanka. Um, the Sri Lankan government was kind of a constant war with the with some local communities in Sri Lanka who were trying to um, defend their community and the government were trying to sort of sell off the community to international hotel investors. Um, and in usual times, the community had kind of enough resources to be able to defend itself. But after the tsunami kind of wiped away the community in a, a kind of physical sense, um, they were more focused on okay, so rec recuperating from the sort of shock of that disaster. And it allowed, the, it allowed the government to kind of, in a sneaky sense, sell off that land to the hotel investors. So that's kind of a big example of how that shock can be used to, to kind of make money i guess um i guess the most popular example that people would understand would be in the iraq war you kind of had two sides of it you had uh, the u.s government pushing private infrastructure investment in iraq um and sort of claiming that that was necessary to rebuild the country but also within america and the kind of the advancement of private military contracts um obviously this is quite a well-known subject and you even see it in popular media as well. I don't know if you've seen the film War Dogs, but it kind of talks about or centers on the idea that it was really easy to get military contracts because the whole of the US population was kind of in such shock at the outbreak of war 
and the need to defend the US against this sort of idea of a threat and, and the world, I guess, that it didn't really focus on what was happening behind the scenes. Um, it's not always international, though. It's sometimes domestic, like, for example, in New Orleans, um, when the hurricane hit, I think it was Hurricane Katrina, um, it allowed the government to rapidly privatize government services and also sell off the land that was kind of previously inhabited by working class people. Um, within the UK, there's some sort of example of that. I think the biggest example we have of that um, was with Margaret Thatcher. Um, we kind of had the strikes going on. We had the Falklands War and that kind of allowed the government to privatize a number of government services and also put the UK on a political course of neoliberalization. Um, I guess in terms of the UK, some will ask whether those changes were inevitable. But the real question here is how this use of shock changed the political and economic course of the UK. Um, obviously, it's not always economic. Um, mainly it is because we're speaking about capitalism and um, in sort of discussions of capitalism, we're mainly speaking about economic things, but um, it's political also. So a great example of that would be post 9-11 US and the sort of changing landscape of security measures, surveillance and securitization that happened in rapid succession after the 9-11, um, after 9-11 and kind of was built on the back of the US needing to, or the US public being in such shock that there'd been such a large domestic terrorist incident or domestic terrorist incident, I guess, um, that it felt that it was necessary. So again, this is kind of like this psychological shock that happens in the society. And then the, the rapid changes that are implemented in succession after this. Um, so I guess in a, in a simple sense, in a sort of, uh, yeah, simple sense, um, it's disaster and the aftershock of disaster and how it's utilized in order to rapidly implement changes that lead to profit. Hmm. You can see it happening today in Hawaii with the wildfires. Yeah, exactly. The The beachfront is now kind of prime real estate. Mm. And those people aren't going to be able to rebuild those houses in there. I don't yeah, and they don't have the resources to right now. Like when, you're, when your house is burnt down or your business is burnt down, you unfortunately don't have the, like, protecting that property isn't your first priority. And so that kind of, allows you know you're in shock that that the entire community is gone and it's been burnt to the ground and that kind of allows people to sneakily think about how they can make money from it and developers offer pennies on the dollar to buy the land and all of a sudden it's hotels now yeah exactly and we see it sort of quite often when it comes to the outbreak of war as well kind of behind the scenes how is that war funded how do the people react to that war and um, and how is money made off of it? Hmm. So how did you kind of come to understand this in terms of Ukraine then? So uh, originally I wanted to look at Ukraine in my PhD research, but unfortunately it's quite unlikely right now that I'll be able to get the data I need out of Ukraine. One, because obviously when it comes to war, the truth obviously isn't isn't really achievable. Like understanding the truth isn't really an achievable um, goal. But also because going to Ukraine and physically accessing sort of archives and, and data is impossible. And also because there's a kind of decreased role of, of unions and society. So I don't know what ability I'd have to be able to go and do that research. Um, but this was kind of my starting point of looking into Ukraine. 
So I firstly started looking at the labor rights changes in Ukraine. You know, in the past few years, we've seen a lot of deregulation, the decrease in the role of unions. But when the war started, I started to look at what was happening economically in Ukraine. And this is how I began to understand Ukraine through that kind of analytical lens of the shock doctrine. So these changes can be traced all the way back to the political turmoil and the color revolution of 2014. The kind of shock of political violence and the notion of a rapidly changing societal discourse led to an interim yet unelected leader, but also set Ukraine on the path of westernization. I guess in previous years, it was heavily influenced by Russia. And this kind of rapid event, this kind of societal pinpoint allowed for Ukraine to be set on that that path of definite um, westernization. And you can kind of see that because there's a article by Open Democracy, and I'm sure most listeners will understand that Open Democracy is a US-funded think tank. Um, and the article is titled, Ukraine is Ripe for the Shock Doctrine. That article was written in 2015. And there's a quote from it that, that kind of, I guess, really sums up how shock was used in Ukraine. The Ukrainian leadership have shown their unbridled readiness to exchange one master, Russia, for another, Western finance and corporate capital. However, this process of societal change takes a number of years, you know, for example, some other Balkan states and post-Soviet states are still waiting for EU succession, yet they still struggle to fulfill the conditions necessary to become part of the union. Um, one of these conditions is the privatization of economies. Um, the EU states that um, you have to have a market economy that can keep up with the sort of competition of the EU to be allowed accession. Um, Obviously, I could talk about various changes in Ukraine during this period between 2014 to 2022. But by now, most people understand the sort of key factors that are at play here. You have Western influence versus Russian influence, the EU candidacy debate, NATO membership, privatization, and the ability for Western markets to make a profit in Ukraine. Um, and in my opinion, after the outbreak of the war, these political and economic changes were able to be implemented in a very rapid sense, kind of utilizing the shock and trauma to do so. Um, before we go any further in the conversation, I want to say that I actually have no real opinion on the matter. The What I'm speaking about today is purely analytical. People usually tend to sway one, or, one way or the other when it comes to Ukraine, especially on the left. Um, I don't question Ukraine's sovereignty at all and fully support their right to defend their homeland. And I don't want any of my analysis to reduce that or reduce Ukraine's idea of sovereignty. I'm purely talking from an analytical perspective here. So, yeah. So is it fair to say that post-2022 invasion, it really ramped up then? Yeah, so I guess when we talk about war, war that's kind of pushed to some extent by the West, but also obviously by the physical invasion of Russia, we have to look at what's happening in society. Ukraine's not a small country. Um, it has quite a large population. Um, but mainly from the war, we see that the kind of the disaster, the shock and the trauma of the invasion allowed for westernization to be seen as the only path forward. And it's interesting that Russia's military goals kind of claim that it's going to stop that path of westernization. Um, and the result of that is actually the, the only path forward for Ukraine seems to be this eventual kind of um, admittance into NATO, into the EU, um, and kind of on that direct kind of rapid path of, of westernization. Um, 
Of course, there is some legitimacy here in terms of defense capabilities and Ukraine's future, but mainly I'm talking about the economic and political changes that have occurred because I am not a military expert. Um, for me, I think it's split into possibly three or four categories that, that I'm going to talk about today. Um, the political changes that have occurred, um, economic privatization, the global reaction to Ukraine, and Russia's own shock doctrine. Because often when people talk about Ukraine, they tend to apply this analysis specifically to the Ukrainian government and not to Russia's own actions. So I think there's something new there that can can sort of be added. Um, I'll briefly summarize them now, and then we'll go into more depth later on. So firstly is a concentration of power. Obviously, this is quite normal during war for, for kind of wartime powers to be implemented, but it has also allowed for the trajectory of westernization and privatization to be pursued at a very rapid pace and kind of without the usual democratic challenges and obstacles that are there in, in terms of a country, in terms of its political system. Um, secondly, the economic privatization, the kind of recovery complex for Ukraine, this idea of the after-war recovery, has allowed um, a relatively unchallenged discourse set by Western private investment funds um, with a ton of conditions um, that, again, wouldn't be allowed in normal circumstances. Um, the global reaction to Ukraine mostly follows the path of the military-industrial complex, and I'm sure most listeners will understand what that is, but we're talking basically about war profiteering. But I think the shock of war in Eastern Europe has really allowed some countries to advance militarization, which I guess I'll talk about later, and sort of use the war in, in a political sense for their own political pursuits. Um, and then, yeah, uh, Russia's action in the occupied territory and their kind of use of shock and rapid occupation to cement the, the idea of these areas as kind of truly Russian. Um, yeah, so which one would you like to start with? Let's kick off with the economic side of things then. So um, I'm not going to pretend that any of these ideas are mine specifically. Um, I sort of firstly came across this idea in a fantastic article by the Women's International League for Peace that kind of specifically looks into the economic side of the shock doctrine. They say that uh, private investment funds, IFIs, and other organizations with vested interests have set the discourse and agenda for recovery in Ukraine. But it's interesting or it's kind of important to understand what this actually means. This idea that private capital is necessary for the continual functioning of Ukraine's economy now in terms of war, but also for its eventual recovery once the conflict is over. And I kind of remember myself at the start of the war, you had countries like Switzerland, Germany and the UK who were all coming out and promising to help rebuild cities. I think it's Switzerland specifically promised to rebuild Odessa, um, which sounds great. Uh, and it was kind of celebrated in media. But actually what was happening behind the scenes is that contracts were signed with major investment companies, construction companies, to allow them to come in and be part of this rebuilding process. Obviously, all whilst making a profit. And again, this can only actually happen under the shock of war, because usually there'd be some level of scrutiny applied to a Swiss company offering to rebuild an entire city. Um, but under war, that's not really the case. Um, even most of the military support via the West, again, it's celebrated in the media and it allows Ukraine to continue kind of defending itself, but it's via lend and lease programs. These aren't free. 
the, the Ukrainian government will owe money to the US, to the UK, to the European Union. And Ukraine is amassing a massive debt at the moment and will most likely have to sell off its country's assets in order to repay this debt after the war. This kind of um this kind of economic change in in shock isn't new though. We saw the same in Greece, for example, or in Sri Lanka, um, where the uh, World Bank offers Sri Lanka loans that have many conditionalities attached, and then when they're unable to repay them, offers kind of the only option going forward will be the rapid privatization of economy. And we also saw it in post-communist Poland. Um, Naomi Klein kind of specifically talks about this. Um, these are all countries that experienced massive economic shock and had to borrow money and then eventually ended up having to completely kind of readjust their society to the massive debt that they that they owed these companies. Um, and it even goes as far as um, there's a number of very odd companies that, are, that have kind of in invested or started buying up Ukrainian land. Like, for example, Harvard has started buying up Ukrainian land. The Saudi government, um, the Vanguard group, they've all started buying up agricultural land because obviously there's the uh, saying that Ukraine is the breadbasket of the world. And eventually all of this agricultural land, which is, I guess, Ukraine's most profitable area of economy, will end up in foreign hands. Um, for example, when the UK offered 60 billion in economic support again it was celebrated but the economic minister of the uk specifically stated that the investment was focused on quote unquote the enormous potential of the private sector and then you have to think about the psychological impact of these policies you know the rapid implementation of this economic regime via war has kind of left ukrainian society with the only understand with the understanding sorry this is the only way forward this is the only way to continue. This is the only way to properly recover. And so that it remains kind of relatively unchallenged. So um, regardless to how individual actors feel about it, I feel this is kind of the entire point of the shock, shock doctrine. It's kind of essential to what Klein argues, a kind of psychological reset that can only happen via a moment of shock and disaster. And I kind of massively see that implemented in Ukraine. It's almost crazy to hear kind of the groups of people that are getting involved in buying the land when it's that kind of scale there's not much you can really do about it no and i guess uh the one that stood out for me was harvard i didn't really look mm. into properly look into why harvard was buying land but uh but they have done and um yeah very very odd yeah strange so how politically have this we've covered economically how about the politics well obviously i've spoken a little bit about um wartime powers that have been extended to cement ukraine's path of westernization somewhat permanently i don't think there's i mean politics are somewhat unpredictable but i don't think there's any going back on that path now um and there's more understandable ones like this sort of projection that it will join nato eu candidate status but also, all of these changes have happened in a relatively unchallenged sense um, that may have not happened during the war. Before the war started, um, there was various political actors in Ukraine, some pro-Russian, some pro-Ukrainian, some, pro some left-wing, some right-wing, that were all fighting against a lot of these 
um, measures in Ukraine and really trying to understand what it actually meant for Ukrainian society. And once the war started, this really hasn't been the case. Um, again, just like in the example I used with the UK, we're not looking at whether it was inevitable, because I guess even before the war, if the war hadn't happened, we could be having this conversation about, well, is it inevitable for Ukraine? But what we're really thinking about is how the shock was used to kind of wipe the slate clean and introduce these rapid changes. Um, so you have to ask yourself, could this concentration of power happen without war? And could these rapid changes happen either? In a way, a lot of these considerations actually remain unanswered because we haven't seen the post-result war of Ukraine. But as soon as we start adopting this form of analysis, I think we'll be able to track the changes better and really understand what's happening in Ukraine. So in terms of the actual political changes, in some senses, they may be positive. Like, for example, Ukraine has been very committed in the past few months at tackling corruption. I'm sure there'd be some crit critics of, of that process, but that kind of allows it to move itself closer to the EU. But it's also led to the somewhat arbitrary blocking of opposition parties under the sort of pretext of, of being affiliated to Russia. Now, I don't know how much these parties are affiliated to Russia, but there's some examples of where maybe one or two people in the party have a mildly pro-Russian status, and now that party is kind of not allowed to function in the political framework of Ukraine anymore. And again, and the kind of thing that, that brought me to looking at Ukraine is a deregulation of workers' rights and the usage of private capital as a means to achieve peace. Um, so one example of that is Law 5371, which removes the need for small businesses to need to follow workers' rights legislation. So any business that has less than 250 workers, which is still quite a big business, I think, if you have 250 employees, but any business that has less than 250 workers now doesn't need to follow workers' rights legislation in Ukraine. And in reference to my earlier point about tracking these changes, the article I, I spoke about um, by the Women's International League for Peace actually says, in the midst of war, it is, of course, exceptionally difficult to scrutinize the process of reshaping a country's political economy, which is exactly what those propagate, propagating for the shock doctrine count on. So really, again, we're counting on this shock of war to be able to implement these changes. So we can kind of, with some confidence, say that without the war, these changes wouldn't happen in such rapid succession. The Modern Insurgent is completely independent. If you want to support our work and help boost independent journalism, please consider supporting us via Patreon at patreon.com slash moderninsurgent. Thank you very much. I find it quite mad that it's That's it. so common in war for the people in power to just consolidate it and to just asset strip the country. Yeah, I mean, it happens in quite a few wars. Um, mm. But for me, it's more interesting that the, the, the wartime powers aren't used specifically for wartime purposes. Like, for example, there's a sort of um, emergency legislation that sort of adjusts to how the war is going and curfews and things like that. Those things are understandable in the context of war. But when you're allowing the, allowing the Saudi government to... Um, to buy up your your wheat farms, um, I don't think that really really matters in the context of war, and kind of wouldn't 
be able to happen without war, without a lot of scrutiny put into the process. Can the shock doctrine also be applied to Russia's policies in the occupied Eastern territories? Yeah, I I think this is kind of my main contribution to the discussion, to be honest. Um, so I guess the use of Russia's shock doctrine is directly parallel to the crisis in Ukraine. You know, Russia really used that moment to implement their own form of the shock doctrine. So again, it kind of begun in 2014 um, surrounding these, these political changes in Ukraine. Now, I personally believe this is a relatively uncommon opinion. Um, uh, I mean, amongst media and, and discourse and things like that. But I believe that Russia wants to use these regions as they're kind of historically the economic center of the industrialized side of Ukraine. So going all the way back to the Soviet Union, these areas were the industrial areas of Ukraine. For example, um, the steel plant in Mariupol, which is a kind of big point of contention at the start of the war, is the biggest steel plant in Europe. Um, those areas are typically the industrialized areas and kind of haven't made as much profit as they would be able to, maybe because of corruption, maybe because of other factors in the past 30 or 40 years. And I believe that Russia really wants to take those regions because of that. Um, but in terms of its kind of its own policies in uh, in implementing the shock doctrine, um, we see, for example, I think the most obvious one is the annexation of Crimea amidst the whole the whole chaos of political change. We saw referendums in in Donetsk and Luhansk one undertaken in suitable conditions. Obviously. Obviously, there's many arguments over these and whether they were actually actually um, legitimate referendums or not. But we can't say for sure that they were done under completely democratic conditions. I don't think the referendums on the future of an entire geographical area can be done under the context of conflict. Um, yeah. Um, and obviously now, or back then... Um, Obviously, going back to political shock of 2014, used the negotiations with Ukraine to fulfill its own political agenda. Somehow, it was an important power in the Minsk um, agreement. Um, and it used that to kind of consolidate control over these territories, whilst also claiming that it didn't really have a role in these territories. Um, so, yeah. And then we come to February 2022. Um, the shock of military around the border is its prominence without much opposition or the already occupied pieces um it kind of was relatively small news in in term in in comparison to the invasion in my opinion you know like it it happened and then the invasion happened a few days later and it was kind of like forgotten about but i think the most important wasn't a surprise for most people despite the fact that these were kind of supposed independent republics, it wasn't a surprise for most people that Russia formally signed them into the Russian Federation. And that's kind of proof of how deep the shock allowed Russia to psychologically reset those areas. Um, one way it did that was the continued propaganda within those areas. It kind of uses this shock of occupation, um, the kind of claims that the Ukrainian army is trying to genocide Russian, ethnic Russians there, to assert claims 
that it is the protector of these areas. You know, it used the Russian language to do so, but that's a huge subject. And I think that'd be a, a big conversation for another podcast episode. But yeah, so, and then we saw the immediate occupation of the air of the areas that it that it claimed to be protecting the areas that, that had ethnic russians in and it did that in in quite a few ways the psychological shock was used in quite a few ways here for example as soon as it had fully occupied the herson oblast um it brought in russian money russian currency was now the official currency which again it's it's the same analysis it's the shock of the conflict and the disaster of the conflict like, being used to psychologically reset these areas and kind of say, well, hey, you're Russian now, you're using Russian money. Um, Russian banking companies were brought in, mostly private banking companies, and were supposedly forcing people to change their cards to Russian cards. The same with telephone numbers. Um, this is all done again during the process of shock. And this is kind of a key to Russia's whole, I guess, ethos in the area of asserting the idea that this is now Russia. Um, and then there's the other point, which is, um, obviously there's been a lot of talk about Wagner in, in media at the moment. Um, but Russia is the second biggest arms dealer. And again, we have to ask how this shock is used to funnel money into the military. You know, if we can apply the shock doctrine understanding to the industrial, the military industrial complex in the USA, can't we do the same with Russia as well? And this isn't a claim, by the way. It's more a point of consideration, you know. Capitalist countries don't usually go to war without at least some profit motive. And as we know, war is profitable. Um, and obviously I spoke a little bit about how Donetsk and Lukansk were um, the main industrialized areas of eastern Ukraine. Um, and we've seen the reindustrialization of these areas under Russian authorities. Not in a massive sense. But as I said, the steel plant in Mariupol is, is a great example of that. And there's actually an article that maybe I'll link to you. I'm not sure if it was deleted, deleted off the internet, but um, that said that they will, I think I have it archived somewhere actually, said they'll make um, the steel plant profitable again within a year. And this is after the steel plant was kind of bombed and destroyed. And there's a claim that it will be profitable again in a year which shows that that's a key priority of Russia. Um, you have resource exploitation, as you know, Ukraine is a massive um, player in, uh, of energy resources, oil and gas. Russia continues to pump oil and gas through Ukraine to Europe. You have iron ore, for example. Um, coal is mainly produced in the Donbass region. So we see a number of reasons for Russia to want to annex these region, regions but also using the shock of war to be able to do that in a very, very rapid sense. Um, you know, from 2014 until 2022, it wasn't able to do that fully. And now it is because it can claim that those areas are actually fully Russian. Um, again, we have the referendum on the newer regions permanently becoming part of the Russian Federation. Done within that kind of continued shock of war. Um, and in 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 Russia as well, not just in Ukraine. Th those areas are now part of Russia according to the constitution. And I think the last one I have to speak about, again, this kind of idea of Russifying the area is offering Russian passports to people in the occupied areas. And this kind of happened very quickly after these areas were occupied. 
And again, it's wiping that psychological slate clean through the shock of war and implementing a new type of psychology that these re regions truly are Russia now. Uh, it's wild to me how big identity has played a role in all of this. Yeah, and Russia's kind of used that, you know, like we're, we're protecting you from Western forces. We're protecting you because you're ethnically Russian. We're protecting your right to speak Russian. And it didn't do that in a slow or respectful sense. They did it as soon as it occupied these areas because it kind of know it knows that it can only do that in such a rapid sense after some sort of major shock or displacement has happened. So you also mentioned that there's some relevance of the shock doctrine within Eastern and Central Europe. Can we touch on that a bit? Yeah, so obviously this shock of war has been politically used by countries bordering Ukraine or even further out in some cases. So there's obviously the continuing debate in the US on funding Ukraine, um, but doing so was 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 kind of allowed to happen because of the shock of war and because of this war against Russia, um, or not against Russia, but in the context of being against Russia. Um, to some extent, I guess, there's a legitimate military threat and somewhat of a continued threat by Russia, you know, the possibility of destabilization in some countries. But instead, again, it's important to reflect on how that shock of war was used by these countries. For example, Poland has rapidly militarized itself and is actually on the way to becoming the EU's biggest army. Um, I think it now has the most tanks out of any um, country in the EU. And again, that might be a legitimate cause, but it wouldn't be able to happen without a lot of scrutiny and without the context of war. Um, the border with Belarus is a constant point of contention in Polish politics, for example. There's now a wire fence that spans the, the all of it or a large portion of the border. Um, but we see continued threats from Poland and the Baltic countries to completely close and seal off the border with Belarus. Um, within Polish politics, there's actually a notion that this whole threat from Belarus is more to do with the upcoming parliamentary elections. But obviously there's some understanding of the threat, especially considering you know Wagner is now in Belarus. And I think that the president of Belarus announced a few days ago that there'll be more than 10,000 Wagner troops in Belarus in the coming weeks. Um, I don't know if you can think of any other examples, but I think I have a few more. Whatever happened to the Afghan refugees on the border between Poland and Belarus. I remember there was a winter they were stuck there and some were freezing to death and then I never really heard much about it again. Um, the Polish government likes to use the term hybrid threat, which basically means um, that Belarus and Russia are threatening the EU in a number of ways, not just militarily. Um, but being in Belarus right now, I can certainly notice that a lot of the refugees remained in Belarus and seem to be doing quite well, to be honest. Um, often when you go to countries that are somewhat afflicted by refugee crises, there's a number of homeless refugees or people on the streets in general, or you can see they're not doing very well and are kind of ignored. But as far as I've seen in Belarus, that's absolutely not the case. They've taken care of. They seem to have integrated quite well into Belarus. The few that I've kind of had brief contact with speak some level of Russian. Um, I mean, that, that's all I can say about it, really. But in terms of the ones that were stuck at the border, 
Yep, I think quite a few of them did die at the border. Um, and it kind of created some sort of um, double standard from Poland, you know, whereby Ukrainian refugees were allowed and, and refugees that I guess weren't white weren't allowed. Um, Belarus claims they didn't try to create that issue for Poland and that those refugees, uh, all those people just arrived in Belarus on tourist visas. But then you have to ask the question as to how 10,000 people from Iraq arrived on tourist visas without there being any sort of red flag raised. Um, but in terms of what happened to them, I think most of them are still in Belarus. Yeah. It's not great. I think, no, but I think they're doing okay here. And I think they're taken care of well enough. And so I think that's better than maybe even the EU or, or Poland itself would treat them. It's certainly better than freezing in a forest, I guess. Yeah, yeah, definitely. Um, I think my last example in terms of um, the kind of the shock doctrine and its, and its implementation in, in Eastern Europe or, or Central Europe, I don't know what you refer to it as now, is the Polish economy. Um, the Polish economy relies on and kind of for the past 10 years has, has historically relied on Ukrainian workers. So the shock of war and welcoming refugees into Poland, whilst an enormous and somewhat commendable task, a really, really big task to, to integrate and to take care of over a million people, um, it's also allowed this kind of shock of war to reinforce the Polish labour force, you know, a labour force that is kind of continually, even to this day, suffering from emigration. So, you know, having a million Ukrainian people in the country has really allowed Poland to to secure its workforce and kind of use the shock of war to claim that it's taking care of them whilst also kind of behind the scenes needing them to work. Like, you know, I reside in Poland right now and you really do see that a lot of the service work, taxi drivers, um, shop workers, has been filled by Ukrainian people. Hmm. I don't think it can be understated how crazy the last two years has been for Poland realistically yeah it's kind of allowed Poland to to become a quite, quite important regional player I mean before the war it was it, I mean it still is somewhat constant war with, with the EU in terms of implementing democratic practices or the lack of democratic practices in Poland but it's allowed itself to become a key player in the future of the EU and I guess in a sense using the shock of war to do that as well you know it is kind of seen as the the frontier between the eu and belarus and ukraine right now or even russia as well so so yeah so finally uh considering all the kind of aspects of the shock doctrine we've looked at and how they have been implemented in ukraine what do you think the future looks like it's hard to say now and i don't really like predicting the future of politics um, as kind of the more I understand geopolitics the more I understand it is incredibly unpredictable I mean actually the the outbreak of of, of war in Ukraine was the point where I decided I was going to um, predict in politics I was kind of personally convinced that Russia wouldn't do that and there was a lot of things in the media about how there'd been military build-ups on the border quite a few times and it wasn't actually going to happen and I ended up looking very stupid when it did happen so yeah, I don't really like to to actually predict geopolitics, but there are a few more certain outcomes. Um, there's a fantastic article by the Committee for the Abolition of Illegitimate Debt, 
which is a fantastic left-wing left-wing organization that looks into the kind of conditionalities attached to debt and really erasing that from geopolitics. Um, and in their article, they say Ukraine will be economically paralyzed by the, the need to prioritize repayment of debt and interest on debt rather than prioritizing the needs of its people who are most in need. So what they really mean there is that after the war, we'll most likely see rapid privatization of government services, a lot of neoliberal measures implemented, possibly years of austerity. I previously mentioned the kind of selling off of Ukrainian land. Um, and all of this will be done whilst trying to recover from the devastation of war and occupation. So I don't think that the immediate future for Ukraine, if the war ends or when the war ends, looks great. Um, they also say in the article, once you start looking into the into how these big aims of the recovery plan are supposed to be achieved, you begin to understand that the means do not match the ends. Um, obviously, we have the possibility of continued instability through con through conflict. Um, I'm not a military expert personally. I think I said that before, but um, so I'm not entirely sure on this one. But the discourse that's available seems to be that the conflict will last. A significant amount longer than 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 really it was presumed in the beginning. I mean, in some cases it already has, right? You know, I remember in um, the first couple of months of the war, even the first few weeks of the war, there was initial negotiations that really seemed to possibly be an end to the war very quickly, um, but obviously they didn't work out, and the prospect of peace now seems more or less and less certain, and seemed more certain then than it does now. Um, obviously we have the possibility of um, Ukraine joining the EU and NATO, these again are not certain but you know, there's a small notion going around that Ukraine may be, you know, a powerhouse of the post-Soviet world, but I'm not sure if this will fully materialise obviously it depends on its um, post-war recovery path um, I do hope the best for Ukraine but I do think there's a long path of recovery before any form of prosperity can be achieved in real terms yeah, I think I completely agree with that little summary. Yeah. Uh, so it's been an honour to have you on, Elliot. Thank you very much for coming. It's been an honour to get a chance to speak. And um, yeah, thank you very much. The Modern Insurgent is your impartial, independent and academic guide in deconstructing the world's conflicts and insurgencies through our unique documentaries, podcasts, reports and scholarly articles reporting on the underreported